1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. with me Chris Smith and also with Ginny Smith.
0: This week we're looking at the buildings of tomorrow, including why in the future we'll be building with more bamboo. And we'll talk to the company who can print you a new house. Plus,
1: a new way of modelling the ecosystems of the entire planet. And what can the blood of a 115-year-old woman tell us about living to a ripe old age? The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk First this week, scientists from Cambridge have unveiled a new way to model using a computer how Earth's different ecosystems, that means the networks of plants and animals that depend on each other, actually work. Now this should enable researchers to understand better how human activities are likely to influence the world around us and how to better conserve what we've got. Mike Harfoot is one of the creators of the system. He's based at the snappily named United Nations Environment Programme World Conservation Monitoring Centre and also at Microsoft Research in Cambridge, and he's with us now.
2: Hello, Mike. Hello, Chris. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. First of all, one question, one word. Why? Yeah, so I think you can separate that into into two components, really. So uh, you hit the nail on the head in your introduction, so... Till now, or essentially at the present, we have very limited ability to be able to predict the future of, I guess, the, the living Earth and therefore to understand the consequences of the human actions in the present and how they might affect the biological world in the future. Another component to that is more of an academic one, but, but really it's interesting to know, is it at all possible? Can we predict the biological world and what parts of it can and can't we predict? How have you got about doing this? We've taken a relatively novel approach in that we're trying to model every different type of organism on Earth and model them at the level of the individual. So how that individual feeds, reproduces, why it dies and and how it moves around the environment. So we have lots and lots of different types of these organisms that we essentially we throw into the model and we allow them to run around interacting, um, eating each other and running away from each other and then we're interested in in when you do all of that, the, the properties of those collections of organisms, how do they compare to the real world really? Essentially,
1: you have a field with grass, you put cows in a field with grass, you then put humans in and they farm the cows they eat the cows, the cows having eaten the grass, there are bugs living in the cows and and, you, and so you build up these sort of layers and layers of things living on on and in and around each other and depending on each other
2: that, that's right I guess my caveat to that would be that we don't have any humans in there at the minute, which is relatively important in the present day so so we're really modeling I guess a pristine world without human influence, but you're right, yeah we, so, you, so you have we have plants and then we have Small organisms that might be eating the plants, and then large organisms might be eating those. Do we know enough about all of those relationships
1: in order to build an accurate model?
2: I think that's the interesting thing that actually the field of ecology knows quite a lot about different parts of it. So so we know an awful lot about um, how fast organisms of different sizes burn energy essentially to survive. We know quite a lot um, about how different organisms move around their environment in order to to find prey, be that plant or animal species, and how fast they can eat those organisms. So we know quite a lot, I think, of fundamental facts about ecology. And what we've been trying to do is encode all of that into our model. There's another question, which is, having put all that together, how do we know if if what we predict looks like the real world? And that we've found a bit more challenging. So in our paper that was published this week, we pulled together essentially as much data as we could find on properties of the organisms and the collections of organisms that we predict in the model be that at the level of individuals so how fast those individuals are growing in the model how fast they're dying or reproducing but then equally when we look at those collections of organisms in a particular place how many of those organisms are very small and how many are very large so we have we have a a certain amount of information from the real world on that kind of stuff and and broadly, the model recreates those patterns. So this is validating the model, isn't it?
1: It's saying, let's take real-world data, let's give the same problem to our model and see if it arrives at a solution resembling the real world. And if it does, we must be doing something right.
2: Indeed, yes. And I guess what we've done today is relatively crude in terms of the formal methods of evaluation. And that partly reflects the amount of data that we can get and also the state of the model. But uh, yes, broadly speaking, we have evaluated the model and it looks like it's a feasible way forward, which is quite exciting.
1: And the fact you haven't put the humans in, is that going to be the next step then? So that you can then begin to ask things like, I want to build a housing estate here. What influence is that going to have on the local ecosystem.
2: Indeed, yeah. So I think there's a sort of manifold sets of research that derive from I guess where we are now with a proof of concept that the framework might work. One of which, as you've alluded to, is much more rigorously evaluating what it can and can't do. Um, another one is definitely including humans or the impacts of humans and, and evaluating so What might the future hold, um, given that we've got a model now to predict it? And and that might be at a small scale, as you say, sort of a housing estate level. It might be at a large scale. So what happens if fisheries lead to a collapse of fish production in the world? What does that mean for how much food we need to grow on land and where we might do that without collapsing terrestrial ecosystems at the same time? I'm
1: slightly surprised that we don't already have this problem solved. But thank you for coming to tell us how you are trying to make that possible. Mike Harfoot, he published that work this week in the journal PLOS biology.
0: Now you might have heard about a teenage boy who survived a five-hour flight between California and Hawaii hidden in the wheel well of a plane. Experts are astonished that he seems to be unharmed but just how amazing is his survival? Here's Kate Lamble and Dave Ansell with your quickfire science about travelling as an aeroplane stowaway.
3: At ground level, the air we breathe is 21% oxygen. As you climb higher, this percentage doesn't change, but the reduction in air pressure means there's less air and so less oxygen available in each of our breaths.
4: Long-haul flights can reach heights of over 30,000 feet. At this height, air pressure is so low that there's only a third of the oxygen available at sea level.
3: The reduced pressure also makes it harder for the oxygen to pass through the membranes of the lungs into our bloodstreams.
4: As low as 10,000 feet, hypoxia can set in because of a lack of oxygen. This leads to dizziness, lightheadedness and eventually loss of consciousness.
3: As well as reduced oxygen, the stowaway would have to contend with temperatures as low as minus 62 degrees Celsius.
4: This can lead to hypothermia, which occurs when body temperature drops below 35 degrees Celsius. Initial symptoms are shivering and confusion, and in some cases it can lead to death.
3: However, hypothermia can be protective as it slows down the metabolism meaning you can survive with less oxygen.
4: Sometimes hypothermia is even deliberately induced in patients suffering hypoxia after something like a stroke. It
3: may be that the stowaway entered a kind of hibernation state, reducing his metabolism and so his need for oxygen, allowing him to survive.
4: Although this time the stowaway survived, others have not been so lucky. In fact, only a quarter of attempts are thought to be successful.
3: Even if you survive the majority of the flight, most people will be unconscious by the time their landing gear is deployed. So they'll fall out of the plane while it's still hundreds of feet up.
0: The number of
4: failed attempts may be even higher than recorded, as many people may have fallen into oceans and never been found.
3: However, there may also be unrecorded successful attempts if the survivor escaped the airport without being detected.
0: Dave Ansell and Kate Lamble. And you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience.
1: Do you know, it doesn't sound so implausible, the idea of someone being able to survive that sort of journey, Ginny, because do you remember a few years back there was a lady who was paragliding in Queensland in northeastern Australia and a big thundercloud came and she was blown up on an updraft to more than the height of Mount Everest in, you know, a matter of seconds. She lost consciousness, obviously, because of hypoxia, but then she came back down to Earth, landed... And was safe. And uh, she survived.
0: It does seem to be something about this combination of cold and the hypoxia that means you can survive it. And people are also saying that young people are more likely to be able to survive. They're a bit more resilient.
1: I think the lady did have a bit of frostbite. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, she, she made a full recovery. Thank goodness. Cochlear implants are electrical devices that consist of a system of tiny implantable electrodes that can directly activate so-called hearing nerves in the inner ear, which is also called the cochlea, and that can be used to treat deafness. But only a restricted set of sounds can be signalled this way, because the nerves are very difficult to activate. But now University of New South Wales scientist Gary Housley and his colleagues have picked up, have found that electricity from the cochlear implant can also be used to make cells in the inner ear pick up short pieces of DNA coding for a gene for a nerve growth signal, which is called BDNF, that can be injected into the ear. And when you make this growth factor, this in turn makes the hearing nerves grow and become much more sensitive to signals from the cochlear implant with the potential to dramatically improve the quality of the hearing experience.
5: The cochlear hearing organ converts sounds of different frequencies into uh, information that's encoded in the auditory nerve fibers, which then transmit that information to the uh, auditory processing centers in the brain. There are about 4,000 cells called hair cells, and they have these little hair-like processes on the tops of them, and they respond to the vibrations produced by sound and release neurotransmitter that stimulates the auditory neurons. And when a person goes deaf,
1: what's gone wrong with the cochlear structure in those people? Typically,
5: it's the hair cells that are the most vulnerable. When the hair cells are lost, then in fact the cells around them also seem to die. And with that, they stop the production of, if you like, a hormone or or a chemical that sustains the the auditory nerve fibres, then the auditory nerve fibre dies back And that's the state that uh, the cochlea lies in, if you like, uh, at the point where people become severely hearing impaired and uh, perhaps a cochlear implant uh, might provide a possible means of of restoring a degree of hearing to those people. And when someone has a cochlear implant
1: fitted, how does it work to restore hearing to those areas that have become hard of hearing?
5: Um, A cochlear implant typically consists of 22 or fewer electrodes, what they do is uh, by passing current from those electrodes out through the cochlear tissue, they're able to electrically stimulate and excite those auditory neurons. And when those neurons fire their action potentials again, people can actually perceive sound. So how have you
1: sought to improve the situation?
5: Well, we've tried to find a means to regenerate those auditory neurons, get the nerve fibres to a point where they're much more easily stimulated and therefore give a broader and and richer hearing experience.
1: And how do you think you can do that?
5: Through gene therapy, it's possible to get cells to synthesize and release nerve maintenance factors, the neurotrophins, that had been lost when the hair cells died, if you like. We use the cochlear implant to uh, provide very short electrical pulses which were effective in actually driving the DNA into cells that were very close to the electrodes to make the nerve fibres head to those electrodes.
1: How do you get the DNA for the growth factor into the area in the cochlear where you want to use the electricity from the cochlear implant to get it into the adjacent cells?
5: We produce the DNA, which codes for this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and we're able to inject that into the uh, cochlea. And then we pass the few electrical uh, pulses. And and literally within five seconds, we've been able to uh, create small pores in cells that are very close to the electrodes. They take up the DNA, and then in short order, they start producing the neurotrophin, And within a few days, the uh, auditory nerve fibres are growing back out and towards the electrodes.
1: Is this a permanent change, or is this just temporary, this nerve response?
5: Using our imaging techniques, we could see these new outgrowths for up to three months after our gene therapy. But by the time we'd gone out to 12 weeks, there were far fewer of these nerve fibres. So what is clear to us at the moment is that the expression is, is waning. So this certainly would be something we'd want to look at and potentially find a means of uh, sustaining uh, the gene therapy for, you know, for a longer period of time. And
1: if you make measurements after these nerve cells have grown in this way in response to the nerve growth factor that you've expressed, does this translate into more sensitive hearing in your experiments?
5: Well, I think that was the really exciting point with the regeneration that we achieved, we're able to then make a functional assessment of potential for improved hearing. And uh, the technique that we used for that is, is very similar to the technique that's used very broadly for newborn baby screening. And that's called auditory brainstem response. We passed small currents through the cochlear implant, gradually step up the amount of current that we're passing until... We were able to record a brain wave. And with our gene therapy, we established that much smaller currents could be used to elicit a response. And then, as we increased the amount of current, we got progressively a greater increase in the output in those auditory centres in the brain. Thank you very much to
1: Gary Housley from the University of New South Wales. And he published that work this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine.
0: Now, mutations are effectively genetic spelling mistakes in our DNA that crop up as we age, and you may have heard of them as being the causes of diseases like cancer. But are these errors always bad for us? This week, scientists in Amsterdam have been looking at the blood of a 115-year-old woman to see what her genes can tell us about living longer – Hannah Holsteger is from the VU University Medical Centre in Amsterdam, and she led the study. Now, 115 years is pretty impressive. Was the woman still healthy at that age?
6: Well, at that time, she had a gastric tumour, and that's actually what she died of. But her blood cells were still very healthy.
0: And that was what you were looking at, her blood cells. So what did you find?
6: Well, actually, what we found is that uh, her blood cells had uh, many mutations, 450 in the repetitive, uh, non-repetitive genome. Um, but they were in the, the fractions of blood cells that had these mutations were such that it could only be possible that they were derived from only two stem cells, one of which was actually derived from the other. And that we did not expect to find.
0: So what's the case in, an, in a young person, for example, how many stem cells would their blood cells be derived from?
6: Well, uh, it is estimated that about that everybody is born with about twenty thousand stem, blood stem cells, um, of which about a thousand are active simultaneously. So, two then is a very, very limited number. But she was
0: still okay, even though she only had these two. What do we think was going on there?
6: Well, it could be that during uh, our ageing, um, the amount of stem cells really decreases by, I call well, enormously. And so, you know, what happens if she would have grown older, if she would not have died from this um, gastric tumour? What would have happened then if she would have had only one stem cell or, you know, if having no stem cells is, does, is, does not, unite, is not united with life? So what would that mean?
0: So what does this tell us about ageing and what might cause that process?
6: Well, um, we don't really know what exactly happened to all the other stem cells. It could be that they are inactive or senescent. We have no idea. But we did see that the uh, telomeres had shortened extremely uh, compared to all the other tissues that we, uh, that we saw, that we tested.
0: Can you explain to me what exactly telomeres are and why they're important?
6: So um, telomeres are at the end of each chromosome and with every division of each cell, uh, the telomeres shorten, and it's been found that when they get short to a certain limit, that then the cell that, that has these telomeres, or shortest telomeres, will die. So it could be that the cells, that the stem cells, have had so many divisions that they could not live any longer and died. But we don't know if that is actually the case. We, we do know that they were very short, though, the telomeres.
0: So you talked about this woman having 450 mutations. That sounds like a lot. How do you know that she wasn't just born with them?
6: Well, well we tested uh, her blood cells and we compared that with the brain cells. And the brain, uh, the brain cells hardly divide after birth. And the blood cells, obviously, uh, they had to supply all the blood cells. So the blood stem cells had, had many divisions after uh, birth. So what we did is we used the brain cells as a proxy for her genome during birth, and then we compared that with the blood cells. And those changes are what we counted.
0: Okay. And what do you think the next step is? I mean, this was done on one woman. Are you looking for other people who are 115 to do the same sort of process
6: on? Well, um, 115 is a pretty peculiar age to to, to get. But um, so we are looking at other people with extreme ages, and uh, we are trying to find the same thing.
0: And we're hoping that this maybe one
6: day will give us the elixir of youth. <laughs> well, I mean, lots of research is, is necessary to, to, to do that. But yes, it could be that this is an extremely important part of, you know, if, if, if there is no telomeres left or if all stem cells are, not, are inactive, then that may be a bit of a difficult thing to, to, to live with. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Hannah. Thanks to Hannah Holsteger. That work was published this week in Genome Research.
1: Finally this week, scientists in Switzerland have created the smallest magazine cover in the world. They've used a tiny chisel to create an image that's so tiny that 2,000 such magazine covers would fit on a grain of salt. Colin Rawlins is one of the researchers behind the work. Hello, Colin. Hi, how's it going? Well, thank you. The number one question must be, why on earth have you done this?
7: Well, it sort of seemed like a, a fun thing to do, but... Also, more generally, it, it was uh, work done with National Geographic, the guys that supplied the cover, and they were looking for a way to sort of show kids that you could do surprising and weird things with, with science. So at, at IBM, we were pretty happy to, to get involved in that.
1: IBM has something of a rep for doing things with very small things. I remember, iconically, the spelling of IBM in xenon atoms about 25, 30 years ago uh, made lots of magazine covers then, didn't it? Um, Actually, how did you do this, though? How how did you actually make these tiny images?
7: So, what we—it's uh, actually uh, related, sort of, to that work that Don Eigler did. I think that we use a, a tip, so a very sharp tip, and uh, we start with a flat plastic layer, and then by applying, or heating up the tip and then pushing it into the surface, we cause the plastic to to evaporate, and so we're left then with a sort of a hole in the area that we we touch down on. And then, if you scan over the surface, making holes of the correct depth at each point, what you're left with is Uh, sort of a a 3D topography of hills and valleys that, if you do it correctly, can look like a magazine cover or indeed anything else that you want it to to resemble.
1: So the magazine cover is a slightly trivial application but makes the point and obviously makes you very newsworthy, but the point being that you could use the same technique then to make any kind of three-dimensional microstructure, very tiny structures that you you would need or have some kind of function for.
7: Yeah, exactly, that's right. So we now, in, as the the technique gets more mature, that's sort of the, the processes, that are sort of the, the way we try and go with this. And um, there are things you can do with 3D structures that it's hard to do with the sort of 2D structures that you can make with traditional techniques.
1: What that's sorts of things like. are you going to make?
7: So there's uh, now one effort that if you can focus light um, to a high enough degree, then you can get interesting quantum effects that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So that's uh, something that paper that was came out I think a year or two ago showing this theoretically and so now we try and make make the the experimental validation of this
1: why is this any better than what we can already do with what's dubbed photolithography where we etch bits of silicon to make microchips which must be on the same sort of scale or smaller than what you're achieving here
7: yeah exactly i mean our resolution uh, the, the scale that we can do this on is um actually a little bit better than you can do with with optical lithography Of course, where we lose is speed, that it takes us much longer because we have to do each point by point. But I think the key difference is is firstly that you can see what you've done straight away. So for scientists who are a bit error prone, this is a pretty nice thing that you can save yourself a lot of time because you can directly see that you've made a mistake and then have another go. And the other thing that we can do is this, this 3D patterning thing, that instead of writing one 2D shape that you can maybe extrude or stretch out of the surface by... or Etch down into the surface. We can really make a three D profile. And, and the light ca-
1: can you also do this with more materials than just uh, the, the traditional ways of etching microchips with silicon?
7: No, I think. I mean, probably in the end, we're still making a shape, and then we use we still use etching to transfer the shape from the plastic into another material, or, or to apply metal to sort of control where metal is deposited or where dopants be controlled. So in that that sense, it's it's a bit it works along the same lines.
1: Colin, thank you very much. Colin Rawlins is one of the researchers behind that work and he's based in IBM. Ginny.
0: And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts from those news items on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. On to our main topic for this week. The need for new houses is hardly ever out of the news. So we thought it was high time that we took a look at the future of architecture and building materials. How will our homes change over the coming years?
0: Now to kick us off, one thing that can be a bit of a problem at this time of year as the sun starts coming out is that it starts getting a bit stuffy at home and you think, oh, maybe I'll open a window. But then it's actually really still quite cold outside. So you end up with this sort of debate in your head about whether you want to put the heating on or open the windows. Well, Sean Fitzgerald is the Managing Director of Breathing Buildings, a Cambridge company who've come up with a way to much more efficiently ventilate our homes. Apart from the fact that it's a bit of a waste if people open their windows and have the heating on, what's wrong with just opening your windows when it gets a bit stuffy?
8: Well, we all have a problem if we're sat by the window, that if it's chilly outside pity the poor granny who sat next to that window, they're going to be subjected to an unpleasant cold draft. And it really is just a local thermal comfort issue because what we have identified through the research that we undertook at the University of Cambridge is that in many buildings, after they have been well insulated, which is just in accord with building regulations, the heat gains within the space and maybe even solar gain on a beautiful day like today, there's plenty of it, The gains within the space are significant. So if you wanted to have a plentiful supply of fresh air, if you do the maths, as it were, you would quickly find out that there's enough heat in the building to manage your thermal comfort. But the granny's got a problem right next to the window. And therefore, it's a cold draft problem, not a shortage of energy problem.
0: So the person by the window is getting cold draft, but someone who's a bit further away from the window may be still feeling hot and stuffy. So how does your system work to sort of even that out?
8: The concept that we came up with at the university, which we've now put into a product and are now sort of selling across certainly across the UK and uh, beginning to sell in the US as well, is a simple system that allows the air to exchange naturally between the exterior and the interior in crude terms, you could say. Isn't that what a window is? But the extra thing that we do is that we mitigate the cold draft by making sure that the incoming cold air is simply mixed with enough of the room air before that cold air, now pre-warmed, hits granny. And we've cured the cold draft problem And we use fans often to do that. But if it's a sufficiently tall space, we won't even use fans. We'll just calculate how high the vents need to be so that by the time the air has plummeted down as a turbulent plume, um, it doesn't create a cold draft. And it allows us to then not use energy-hungry mechanical fans, which have been the previous way of curing the cold draft problem. And that's really been the Achilles heel of ventilation in buildings, the massive amounts of fan power being used.
0: So does this mean you have to sort of design your house with this in mind? Do you have to change the way houses are being built?
8: If we broaden the topic and say actually buildings in general, then yes, it does. Not because of the necessarily the winter issue, but if you want to try and get away from using fans to distribute air throughout the year, everybody within a building needs to be within reasonable proximity of an outside wall, a roof or a big atrium. So it's really the architecture uh, is driving the building to be able to be naturally ventilated by using principles where natural air flows within a building are limited depending on the floor to ceiling height and how far away from an external facade that you are.
0: So if you've got a big office building and you end up in an office that's right in the middle, then it's not really going to help.
8: It's not. And it's really important to identify that if that's the type of building that's being erected for good reasons. For example, if you're building in London, where land is very expensive, you want to maximise the building area, you will end up typically with what we call deep plan buildings. So people in the middle of a building, multi-storey, a million miles away from the external facade. Those buildings have to be mechanically ventilated. But when one looks at the building stock across the United Kingdom, not everybody's living in the middle of London. Most people actually live in areas where land isn't as expensive and buildings can be constructed and are being constructed, which then lend themselves very well to being naturally ventilated.
0: And what kind of energy savings are we talking about here compared to a traditionally ventilated building?
8: There was some lovely work done in the early 90s by a team at the University of Cambridge and they identified that if you were to build a typical office building and ventilate it in a classical way, air conditioning, mechanical ventilation, and compare that with a building that had been designed so that it could be naturally ventilated. The energy savings were a factor of two. Now, not all of that is related to the savings in fan power. The savings are to do with because everyone is now within reasonable proximity of an outside wall, they've got a greater possibility of being able to use natural daylight for a greater proportion of the year. So you get lighting savings as well. But these buildings can save the energy by a factor of two. And with our technology, we are seeing results where the energy savings are a further 50%. So we're almost a factor of four in total, we've seen.
0: So great news, both for the environment and for the, the company. And for your, energy bills,
8: for your energy bills, indeed. So it's a, it is a magnificent result. And If you care about the energy story, then green energy supply versus using less of it in the first place. Using less of it in the first place is a general rule for where you get a greater, greater return on your investment. You
1: installed it in your office, Sean?
8: We haven't installed it in our office. We lease our office and the office is an old building and we could go into the details. But if it's really old, it's already leaky and I don't need to worry about minimum air supply in the winter.
1: Sean Fitzgerald, thank you very much. Now, it's not just the way that we build houses that could change in the future. The materials we're using might as well. In order to make housing across the world more environmentally friendly, Michael Ramage from the University of Cambridge is trying to develop the use of bamboo to replace some of the more
9: traditional building materials. Hello, Michael. Hello. So why bamboo? Um, We're very interested in bamboo because it is very fast growing. Uh, It's widely distributed around the world, particularly in areas where populations are growing and populations are moving to cities, but also where trees don't grow. Um, and it's extremely strong.
1: What about the environmental equation whereby in the same way that people in America were growing a lot of crops to make biofuels, but actually they were taking land that could be grown for food out of production, there was an environmental cost therefore because they had to buy the food in from elsewhere or turn other land into food-producing land to make up for the fact they were growing you know, fuel crops. Can we make the same sorts of arguments for bamboo? Well, if
9: any anyone has grown bamboo in the garden, they know that it grows rapidly and it tends to grow anywhere. Um, and the countries that grow a lot of bamboo, uh, like China or Colombia, we find it, um, it grows very well on hillsides, extremely steep hillsides where you can't plant crops. So why are people not doing this already? There's a long history of using bamboo in its natural form uh, for houses um, in vernacular culture, so people basically people building without architects. Um, and it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that people have processed bamboo into the type of materials we use in conventional construction.:
1: Well tell us more how do you? process it because when i've seen bamboo used i mean in china you see scaffolding up buildings to extremely great heights made of bamboo and you think gosh that doesn't look very strong but actually it clearly is how is it used differently then
9: um so the processing of the bamboo is it it grows as a round. it's a stalk it's a blade of grass that happens to be 17 centimeters in diameter and it gets it gets split up into slivers which are then cut down into rectangles and then the rectangles are glued together to make big sheets of what we might refer to as plywood. It's it's a different material, but it's like a sheet of plywood.
1: And what's its mechanical characteristics that mean it's better or at least equivalent to what we could otherwise
9: use? So um, it's about five times stronger than timber in either tension or compression. So when you pull on it or push on it, it's also – it's extremely – Compared to its strength, it's extremely flexible. So its flexibility is about the same as timber. Gosh, these are good
1: statistics, aren't they? I, I can't understand why we're not all doing this already.
9: Well, the the material is – although bamboo grows all over the world and there's a lot of the material and it grows extremely fast, it's not – there isn't a lot of bamboo that's processed. It's mostly processed for flooring as you probably have seen in, in buildings around Cambridge. It's quite popular.
1: But it doesn't sound like it's rocket science to make those processed bamboo materials. You chop it up and glue it together, which is what we're already doing for chipboard and things anyway, help me.
9: Yes, indeed. But one of the problems is that there is at the moment very little market uh, because engineers and architects don't necessarily uh, have codes they can refer to for designing bamboo buildings. And without bamboo buildings being designed, uh, companies are reluctant to make a lot of material that doesn't have a market. So how
1: does it stack up in terms of where it could be deployed? What sorts of building applications could it have? And will it save people money? Because all of this is going to come down to the bottom line, isn't it? Is this, is this going to end up costing them a load more? If so, they're not going to do it because they're going to pass that on to the customer and become uneconomically viable.
9: Well, we think, and the research that we're doing at Cambridge University, is uh, looking at how we can use this structural bamboo in large-scale buildings. So six, seven, eight, ten-story buildings. Um, And at the moment, a building like that made of structural bamboo would be much more expensive than an equivalent in steel or concrete. But we think in the long term that it will become competitive, um, especially if we change the way we price carbon. Will this be mainly the cladding that the bamboo
1: is used for or would you see it being used for all of the buildings? So you could replace the steel frame or the timber frame or whatever sort of building you're doing with some kind of bamboo composite?
9: The work we're doing at the moment is looking at ways to replace the frame, the structural frame with with bamboo. Um, There is already quite a bit of material that can be used for cladding, particularly the, the interior surfaces.
1: And what about the lifing of the material? We know if you build a house from an oak frame, it'll be there in 500 years if you look after it. Do we know what the lifing of these bamboo materials is?
9: The same is true for bamboo. If you if you keep it dry and keep it out of the sun, and, and in other words, if the architects and the engineers detail the buildings correctly and they stay dry, um, then it will last for a very long time, just like wood will. And why is bamboo
1: structurally, at the sort of ultra-structural level, So good in this regard. Why does it have these
9: characteristics? Um, Well, um, we have partners at MIT who are working on that at the moment. Um, But in in simple terms, it's made up of very, very strong fibers that go in one direction up the the stalk of, of bamboo. And those fibers themselves are extremely strong. And so
1: if you cross them, so they're at 90 degrees to each other, when you stick the chips together, then you're going to get this very, very powerful composite sort of in two different directions aren't you just like plywood
9: yes and there are many ways you can put them together either crossed or all oriented in the same way to get different sorts of properties depending what you're trying to build
1: well i might have to build my next house out of bamboo so the pig that built his house from straw was sort of halfway there he was still using a sort of grass wasn't he michael ramish from the university of cambridge thank you very much
0: this week we're talking about architecture and how our homes might change in the future One team working on a huge change in how homes are built is Dus Architects in Amsterdam. And they're currently 3D printing a whole canal house, one room at a time. Martine De Witt is the co-founder of the practice. You're 3D printing a house. I'm guessing you're not using a sort of normal 3D printer, the desktop things that I've seen before.
10: Uh, No, not really. But we actually upscaled one. Um, we upscaled uh, Ultimaker, which is a uh, self-built uh, 3D printer, uh, and we upscaled it to a size so we can now print 2.5 by 2.5 by 3.5 metres high. OK. Um. What made you decide
0: that 3D printing a house was a good idea?
10: Well, we had uh, these uh, desktop printers at the office, and we were printing uh, uh, scale models, architectural scale models with them. And while doing that, we thought, uh, well... Why not build a house at once and without making a model?
0: So most 3D printers I've seen
10: use plastic to build their models. Is that what you're using? Yes, that's what we use as well. Um, but a, di- a little bit of different uh, uh, sort of plastic.
0: And how exactly does it work? Do you print them out in layers?
10: Yes, we do. it's exactly the same as the desktop printer. So you, you really build it up uh, layer by layer. Uh, So it's the FDM technique, as we call it. um, And we use um, uh, pellets instead of a filament. And the pellets go into an extruder where it's melted and uh, uh, squeezed together to a homogeneous liquid. And that goes to the uh, nozzle, which is uh, programmed.
0: And how do you know that something like this is going to be structurally sound? I'd be a little bit nervous about getting into a house that was... Printed with it on a three D
10: printer. <laughs> I can imagine. No, no, no. It's um, yeah. We are uh, testing that all. So we are we have a lot of uh, research and do um, uh, projects within the project, and one of them is the uh, construction uh, research and do. So we we test by doing because there are no parameters, of course, to calculate with. So we make test prints and those test prints go into um, a scientific program to uh, get parameters to start making calculations for construction.
0: How did you go about designing this house? This is something brand new. What made you decide to go for a canal house, for example?
10: Ah, okay. Yeah. When we think about 3D printing, then you can also think that you make something here, but uh, you can print it all over the world. So we really wanted to do something local, something that fits Amsterdam. But Amsterdam was always the inner circle, uh, city, the rings, let's say, the, the canal belt. is really a center for innovation where the newest things were shown off. And also when you look at the canals, you see um, uh, the houses, they all have kind of the same language, uh, but they are very different. So the, I thought we thought that, would be a really nice uh, example to make the 21st century uh, canal house. And is this something
0: you see as being, in the future, this will be how everything's built?
10: I think so. At least it will be very common, I think. I don't think that we are going to print all the houses, maybe. But I do think that lots of houses will be printed with the houses that are still built in traditional ways, Uh, The 3D printer will be just a tool uh, next to a a saw or a drill bit. It's really going to be a a, a tool which you use to make a house.
0: Now, we've been talking a lot about being green and being environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. Building a whole house out of plastic doesn't sound very environmentally friendly to me.
10: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think plastic can be also very environmentally friendly, but uh, most of all, I think the environmentally friendly part of 3D printing is that you only transport the raw materials so not the constructed parts and also you're only going to use the materials that you need for the object so there's no waste at all and the building industry is the biggest waste producer which we have at the moment so that's going to be a big uh, difference and we are thinking of um, printing with uh, uh, recycled plastics plastic that are not in use anymore and then next the fourth thing actually is that if you have something printed, you could shred it and uh, use the material again good answer
1: martin um joseph langton has got in touch on twitter and said could you 3d print him an e-type jag for the garage to go at the house <laughs> <laughs> from De- printing
6: the car or printing the garage <laughs>
1: both i think martin thank both. you very much that's martin dewitt from dus architects in amsterdam Arguably, one of the most important considerations when we're designing new buildings is energy efficiency. And a lot of that relates to how many lights need to be turned on to illuminate the interior. And as we build at higher densities, we need to meet strict thermal insulation requirements. And architects are having to think even more creatively about how to make the maximum use of free lighting in the form of natural daylight. From MIT, Christoph Reinhardt
11: daylight is an important concept not only for architecture but for really everybody if you think back before the times when we had electric lighting in building really daylight was a necessity the only source of us being able to see what is going on in building why daylighting is important nowadays has actually two reasons well first of all it uh, tends to provide A better type of lighting than electric lighting. It's because the colors of daylighting come out more vividly. When daylight shines on objects you can see them better. Now another uh, benefit of daylighting is of course that if we have a room without uh, a window then we have to turn on the electric light and that takes a lot of energy if we use the daylight that comes for free.
1: What about uh, human physiological impact as well? Are humans better off under daylight than under artificial light?
11: Yeah, that's uh, it's very good that you're asking that question. So we've known for a long time that uh visual rendering of objects are better with daylight because it comes in all colors of the rainbow. So they render the color of that object very well. Something else that's very exciting that we only found out really within the last decade is that daylight not only provides us visual information uh, about the world around us, but it also is linked to something is called our circadian rhythm. So our biological clock and what that concept means is really that all of us in our brain we have a little clock that tells us what time it is and uh, if we wouldn't get any clues from the outside world be it, uh, through light what time it is then we would start drifting some of us would have maybe 25 hour days others would have 23 hour days so daylight is very important in, in, in training us it basically keeping us all synchronized that we can all follow our lives at the same time but equally,
1: is it possible to end up with too much daylight exposure if you 're working in a building and care is not taken? Could you end up with overlighting of the interior?
11: Oh, absolutely that can happen so architects and owners think uh, the more the better so if we just open our uh, buildings, have a fully glazed facade, then we get more daylight, and it 's necessarily better, but that 's actually not the case because once we have too much daylight and we want to read a book or do something on an electronic device such an ipad or a computer then we might be in situations where we can't see because there's too much light and basically what there is it's really too much contrast that means if you are in a room that is partly very very bright to to sunlight and then when you look in the back of the room it's very dark then our eye cannot adapt cannot take in this large range of brightness variances and that's called glare that uh, leads to um, discomfort so do
1: architects have mechanisms to predict how much light is going to penetrate into a building what the likelihood of glare occurring is and therefore how to mitigate it
11: There are methods in place, so uh, especially uh, over the last couple of decades, we've had made in the architecture world a lot of advances in uh, modeling buildings in a computer. So it's as if we are putting a a building into something like a computer game from the gaming industry and then we can model the light for a whole year that shines on the building. So we have, have become very good at predicting how much light there is in buildings. And equally
1: does the same apply when trying to get light into a building? So formatting the interior correctly so that you can get as much light as possible as deep into your building structure as possible. So it's not just the people who sit by the windows that are well lit. Yeah, that's a very
11: good question. What is very important is uh, how high the upper edge of the window is. So if you're in a space right now and you're looking at the window, you really want to have the distance between the floor and the upper edge of the window as high as possible. So then you can basically get away with a window that takes maybe a third or so of the whole facade, the rest is just wall. But if the window is like a band of light with, which is close enough to the ceiling that on the one hand it allows you to look outside but also it's, it's high up, then it penetrates light very deep into the uh, space. <laughs>
1: Now, we're talking here about individual buildings, but often developments occur as whole clusters of buildings. So is there Mm -hmm. any way or any tools available for architects to be able to format whole cities even so that they make the maximum use of available light and they minimize their cooling bills, they minimize their heating bills in order to be as energy efficient and light efficient as possible?
11: Uh, legislation has been in place for a long time. Arguably one of the first legislations in the field of access to light at the street level and in buildings comes from 1917. These were the ordinances in New York City that when all the skyscrapers were being built in Manhattan that um, stipulated how much offset buildings have to have from a street so that there's sufficient light uh, both on the street level as well as in the buildings. And these were really uh, what we would call section-based. So it's as if you draw in two-dimension a city on a piece of paper, just the outline, and you don't really think three-dimensionally of the problem. You just See uh, two buildings next to each other that form an urban canyon. Nowadays, due to uh, advances in computer rendering and just uh, availability of data on cities, what we've been working on in our lab is uh, an urban modeling platform called uh, Umi. And what this allows is that we can effectively use data that are available for many cities, which are called geographic information systems that contain information about the form, the shapes of any building in a city, the usage pattern the existence of trees around it, the value of the building, and so forth. So we can take these big databases and convert them into energy and lighting simulation programs and scenes, run simulations of lighting and energy for a whole city, and then provide that back to the city. So they can then use this information, for example, to have better policies of how much distance between buildings has to exist. Uh, when you go away just from the daylighting and look more at energy use in buildings, we can then use this for policy measures to say what are the most offending buildings in our neighbourhood that use too much energy, how can we uh, help these buildings to save energy for the whole city.
1: Christoph Reinartz from MIT. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Ginny Smith and we are talking this week about the buildings of tomorrow Uh, michael ramage and also sean fitzgerald are with us anthony gortastic has got in touch and says how high michael can buildings go perhaps you could comment on bamboo how high do you think you could build
9: um well we know we can build 10 story buildings with wood and we've got proposals that are feasible for 30 stories in wood so with bamboo being somewhat stronger i think 50 to 60 stories will be probably quite likely in the near term
1: Quite eye-watering. Thank you for that. Maria Gabriella Franque-Condé says to you, Sean, when talking about sustainable agriculture, you listen about green roofs and walls and urban architecture. It's claimed that plants absorb CO2 and pollutants in the atmosphere. Would that be the same for the crops we'll later eat?
8: I think the topic of green materials for buildings is amazing because one of the challenges that we have in a building is assessing the embodied energy. In other words, how much energy or carbon was used to make the materials. And If you make it out of things like bamboo, it becomes a carbon sequestra.
1: Lovely answer. Thank you very much, Sean Fitzgerald.
0: This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ginny Smith, and with Chris Smith. Closing this week's show, Hannah Critchlow has the question of the week. This week, we wake ourselves up with a refreshingly novel
12: and stimulating question. Justin Smith.
2: Why is it that at the office I get so tired I could just about die? Every day is like this, but yet on the weekends I don't suffer.
13: Am I just bored at what I do? Is it lack of oxygen?
12: What's the scientific rationale for this, Dr Tom Manley?
13: I think a broad assumption, obviously, is that the things that you're doing in the office are less interesting and less enjoyable than the things that you're choosing to do at the weekend. But I think with any task, we can see that there's a sort of dynamic interaction with the degree to which it captures the resources of the brain that are needed to do that task. So if we're doing a task which is very interesting and salient, it's offering lots of stimulation that capture our attention. If you think about things like novelty, if it's very new, that will tend to capture our attention. Or if lots of very exciting things are happening very quickly.
12: Hmm, frequent flurries of interesting novel and salient tasks. Does that sound like your work? Perhaps Justin's work is more like this.
13: Watching paint dry, watching test cricket. All our effort is involved in monitoring whether our attention has moved onto the task or has moved away from it and keeping it there. And that's what we experience as this subjective sense of effort. And it's easy to see how some tasks that we do in the office would more easily fit into that category. We've done it many, many times before. It holds very little interest or excitement for us.
12: And are there any differences between weekend activities and what you're up to at work?
13: maybe how sensitive the task is to a lapse in attention. So if you're in the office doing the annual accounts, your attention may wander just for a moment. But that, the consequence of that is that everything will be out in the accounts and you'll have to start again. So you'll really notice that lapse in attention. Whereas at the weekend, maybe you're, I don't know, hoovering, pottering around the house. You probably won't even notice if your attention has drifted from the task. It has no consequence But the the real key, if we're able to achieve it, and it's not always easy to achieve, I realise, is if we want to pay attention very well during our work, then do something that you love. That's what makes it easy to pay attention.
12: Well, I think that's what we all aspire to. Thanks, Justin, for the question and Tom for the answer. Moving on, I'm in South Africa. And whilst there, I came across this gem of a question.
10: Hello, my name is Ilham Jardin. I'm from La in
0: Johannesburg in South Africa and I'm at the Rancho, also in Johannesburg in South Africa. And my question is, why does fire burn?
2: What
1: do you think? Hannah Critchlow, and if you can help Hannah with an answer, then please get in touch via Chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet your hot answers to at Naked Scientists. That is it for this week. We have to say thank you very much to our guests Martin DeWitt, Sean Fitzgerald, Michael Ramage, uh, Hannah Holsteger, Michael Harfoot, Colin Rawlins and Gary Housley, and thank you also to Ginny Smith for joining me. Next time we'll be delving into the world of dinosaurs with a special programme all about paleoontology. I hope you can join us. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC
6: and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.